0: Welcome to the Poets and Philosophers Podcast. I'm Abe. And I'm Sam. And we respect the great tradition. We're also brothers. We talk about the great ideas and the Christian life. If you love philosophy, old books, ancient ideas, and God, you should subscribe. Guess what? We are starting a reading club. If you want to join our reading club, you can go to poetsphilosophers.com. Com. That's poetsphilosophers.com to find out more how to sign up for our reading club. More details will be there on what platform we will use and how, we, and how to sign up for that. Also, it'll just be a good website to bookmark to check back later for other stuff. All right, so our last episode, we talked a little bit about, or we really reviewed the book, uh, Leisure, The Basis of Culture by Joseph Pieper. This is a very seminal book. I It's funny, I, I was reading something or listening to somebody else. Yeah, I think I was, I was listening to a, a lecture by Douglas Wilson on productivity, a really good productivity book, and um, he references uh, Joseph Pieper in his lecture, and I was like, oh, hey, you know, there you go. But I just wanted to open up our segment today, our podcast, with a little bit of reflection as far as what... Uh, we learned from or any new things we learned from our previous podcast. And one of the things I did and have done is that I have tried to reduce the amount of messing around I do on my phone to simply either listen to a good audiobook from you know classical literature or uh, one of the great books, or um, just spend more time without listening to anything at all and i really have appreciated that um i don't really use facebook very much in fact what i've done so far is i've unfollowed every single person on facebook so whenever i do open up facebook it's just a blank feed and i don't see anybody uh posting anything so i'm not like addicted to keep scrolling through it and figuring out and just mindlessly scrolling through it so that's been helpful for me there and I've just deleted the YouTube app on my phone so I'm not listening to news or just random stuff all the time. So Sam, any reflections or any new things came into your mind after our previous podcast?
1: When I get into my car now, I am more likely to turn on some kind of music. Uh, Either it's folk music or piano music and I feel somewhat... I don't know if the words posh. I don't wanna act as if, oh, all you all you need to do is read the old books, listen to classical music, and say no to social media. That that's you know what we're both arguing. I don't wanna argue and say I'm changing my life now and completely, you know, distancing myself from the uh world or pop culture. But I have been more intentional about not feeling like I have to listen to that next uh, Guilford lecture series that I've been wanting to, you know, listen to, or I don't need to turn on this new audiobook on, you know, the hiddenness of God that I've been very excited about. I want to be able to just get in a car and be able to think and kind of see what's around me, see different buildings that are being built um, and be. I guess more present. Anyways, I don't want to sound too lofty with uh, that kind of comment. But one thing I did want to bring up that we never really came back full circle with last episode is this idea of leveling that Kierkegaard talks about. So last episode, Abe, you were talking about leveling and you read it in well, Kierkegaard's this is the two episodes
0: ago, really. Okay. I thought, uh, was it silence? Yeah, that was two episodes. We oh, just did the leisure. Okay. and then, Correct. Yeah. Okay.
1: So two episodes ago, we talked about silence. Last episode was leisure. But two episodes ago, we talked about silence. We mentioned the book, The Present Age, by Soren Kierkegaard. And there's this phenomenon that Kierkegaard mentions of leveling. And I wanted to just, I guess, come back and talk about that. Leveling is, and I quote from Kierkegaard, is a silence, I'm sorry, is a silent mathematical and abstract occupation which shuns upheavals. All right, what does exactly that mean? That sounds kind of ridiculous. It's really, there are no meaningful differences between, um, the vital, important news that you need to know as a Christian or just as a human and trivial information that is spread everywhere. You know, he says, there's nothing today except publicity. Um, Nothing happens today, but publicity. That's what Kierkegaard says. Well, leveling is what the press does. The press puts on their newspapers One very important article right next to something that is very trivial. And guess what? The masses don't know where to focus their attention. And he thinks the press is the culprit, but it's specifically through leveling that they produce an age that is all talk and no action. Everyone's talking about stuff. But no one's actually on the move. There's no silence today. There's no deep, um, I guess, contemplation. So anyways, leveling is the uh, shunning of upheavals. It is it is
0: rejecting meaningful differences. All right. I think it's helpful if you're going to be reading more of Kierkegaard, which he has a lot more nonsense like the word leveling in his writings. But uh, I that's a, a really good term to, to know about and to see what he's trying to talk about that everything's just kind of flat and there's really no sense of the grand, but there's also, there's no sense of the profane. And that's, uh that's rough. And I think, I think he's right about that as far as our, uh, our discourse our at least our me- news media discourse is like that. And um, I mean, yeah, we could talk a lot about that, but, to time into leisure, oh, time into leisure. It's just that that leisure helps us reflect more about our own lives and to actually comprehend and contemplate the magnitudes of certain things as well as the triviality of other things. I think that's important to know.
1: I, I wrote this uh, a book review on the present age, I think, two years ago, and I have seen the term leveling come up uh, time and time again. Now maybe it's because I've been in a program that has, you know, focused on academic, you know, academic topics. But I have actually seen the term leveling quite often, and now I have a better understanding of what it is. I think that Kierkegaard's using the term as it's normally used, as we would see it today. I don't think it's a, I guess, a technical term for him. Right. But, um, anyways, I, hopefully, if you do ever see the term leveling, that's kind of what it means, and um, hopefully, it's not too of a. A, a jargon
0: word yeah no i yeah level so it's like a you know, you flatten it out so it's all the same height that i think that makes sense um all right so today what we're going to discuss is stories genre and help you when you're reading stories to know what are the functions and features of certain stories and how they're supposed to go places as well as reflect on when we're reading uh the bible um that follows certain conventions that. Once you know those conventions are there, it's really helpful because you see what an author might be doing. And you see as well, um, you see uh, when the author chooses to kind of subvert the conventions of a particular genre. That's always helpful to know. So we're going to talk a little bit about Aristotle and his poetics. We're going to talk about the genres of literature. And we're going to talk about um, our own reflection on how we read. And how Christians should read, or should Christians read or go to the theater at all? Um, I think it's a, something worth looking at. So, this first thing I want to look at is looking at Aristotle and how Aristotle says um, we should be reading stories. What's interesting about this at all is so, Aristotle had his, um, had a, an older gentleman, Plato, who he very much admired, but they differed on this fact of reading stories. Aristotle saw great value, and it's really interesting because Aristotle is the philosopher. You know, If you're reading any of his stuff, he is very calculated, very exact in his approach to things, and he writes an entire book, which we only have half of. The other half of Poetics was lost to us, but we have half of this book that he has on the value of reading literature and the wonder of reading—well, Really, not reading literature, but seeing plays. Whereas Plato seems to be very, um, is a cons- scholarly consensus that Plato did not appreciate plays. In fact, wanted to do away with all sorts of literature. And um, there's a, uh, a scholar named Martin Pukner, and he's from, uh, I think he teaches at Harvard. Um, but he says this about why Plato wouldn't like these sort of things. He wrote against these ideas of reading stories in Book 3 and 10 of Republic. And he says, just about philosophy in general, A philosophy, a discipline concerned with truth, being in the foundations of knowledge, was predestined to abhor the theater, which is premised on lying, appearance, and the construction of false worlds. So we'll talk a little bit later on should Christians even enjoy or even go to the theater and watch certain things? Because um, we we do, we want to deal with the truth. We want to deal with things that is true, and we want to get away with things that are false and lying. Um, and based on yeah, based on lies. So we want to get rid of that. But we'll talk a little bit later on that whole thing. But I think it's helpful for us to to realize that as we jump into this poetic section here. So Sam, according to Aristotle, why? Do we read stories? Or what's the purpose of them?
1: In his fourth chapter, he talks about how, even if what you're talking about, the story you're talking about, even if it's painful, it's a delight because um, it's a realistic rep- representation of, I guess, reality. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why Plato would not like story or, or, uh, I guess, poetry, because it is a representation of the ideal. So you have to understand his under, you have to understand how he went about knowing things, right? That's called epistemology is the very fancy word, but how did he go about knowing things? Well, he believed ideas are, are, you know, ideas are the main things to know. Now below that, you have representations of those ideas. So beauty is what we want to know. Well, guess what? I can't see beauty unless I see an expression of it, let's say, in a um, flower, tree. So he sees poetry or story as a, rep- as a representation. It's not the thing itself. Anyways, Aristotle thought it is a delight To see a representation of, yeah, the real idea, I guess. And he also says in uh, chapter four as well, we learn through stories. And guess what? We as humans love to learn because we're programmed to learn. And this is, I can even just think, I think two weeks ago I interviewed someone for um for a position at the the company that I work for, and we were at a coffee shop sharing a you know a cup of coffee. Um, I mean, he had his his own coffee, and then I had my own coffee. We weren't sharing the same cup, oh, but okay. yeah, um, yeah. we uh, I, I I referenced the story of Nathan going to David and rebuking him for the sin with Bathsheba. And I forget why it came up in our in our discussion. But I said, "Do you know that story?" And he kind of nodded, but he said, "If you tell it, then I might remember. I know that he had probably hadn't heard the story because it's so good, and if you have heard it, um you'll surely remember it." So I got really excited to start telling the story about um, you know, the Nathan going to him saying, "Hey, there's this king." And he had, you know, many, many lambs of his own. And then He was going to sacrifice, but but he didn't sacrifice one of his own lambs. He sacrifices a lamb of his, um, of some servant who only had one lamb that he, that it lived in his house and he played with and his children knew it. And this corrupt king killed this old man's only lamb and then David gets very upset and says, ah, he should be killed. And then Nathan says, You are the man. That parable is so good. And I, as a as someone who knows it, I love saying it to people who haven't heard it because it is a delight, right? It is a story and it's such a good one. Actually, yes, just yesterday at at church we were teaching, or I was teaching a class on First Kings. And we're in first, first Kings three, where Solomon, um, in all of his wisdom, he um, he identified which mother, which uh, the living son, that it should go to the mother, or that really the prostitute, that it was hers and not the other one who who suffocated her own child. Anyways, there's these stories that are so good. So not only are they delight, but they're also a, I guess. Um, uh, a device for us to learn and uh, know. So I think that's what Plato talks, or not Plato, that's what Aristotle talks about. And I I seem to agree with Aristotle. I think that stories are good things and um, and they're delightful and they teach.
0: Yeah, there is something in stories that helps us learn that much better. I think your story there with Nathan, the prophet and David is, is a very good example. I think also of, um, you know, teaching my kid the uh, books of the Bible. And like, yeah, I could say, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but I put it towards a, a, I put, I give it some meter and I give it some lyric, uh, some, uh, some melody. And I say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts letters to the Romans. And then he, he begins to get it and he can follow along with me. And one of the things we have to recognize when we understand when Plato talks about the plays or the epic poems or poetry, he really means that there's a meter towards them. So like epic poetry had its own meter, comic poetry had its own meter. And so those would be combined together as far as this rhythm that was, and that would help to learn things because you could kind of help with it. Like, for instance, uh, when we go to bed, we're, uh, we're reading the, the boys, um, Uh, these Alice in Wonderland poems, I mean, Alice Wonderland stories, and they're set to meter, and they're set to rhyme. So, uh, it is so great, because like, as soon as I get to this point where, you know, little Alice, she receives an airmail bird, delivers this message, as the message said, and he can say it, he'll go, reading is the magic key that takes you where you want to be, you know. And he gets it, and and he'll quote, you know, his favorite part to quote is uh, uh, here's a few lines that he loves to quote, but one of them is, you know, and the, the stone hit his forehead, and or the stone hit Goliath's head, it sank into his forehead, and Goliath fell down dead. You know, he loves quoting that part, because um, it'll really go out on the dead there. So there's just something there that helps us, and I think Aristotle has two things that we're talking about. Number one, he says, first, the instinct of imitation is implanted in man from childhood. One difference between him and other animals uh, being that he is most imitative, imitative of living creatures and through imitation learns his earliest lessons and no less universal is the pleasure felt in things imitated. So we love to imitate things. He argues that's just an innate feature that we have. He secondly argues that the reason why is because uh, life has a meter. And poetry uh, reflects some of that meter there. And I would include what you were saying, too, is that it it helps us, tying into what uh, Aristotle was saying, it helps us learn things. So there's that sense of, it's very didactic, and we learn more about ourselves when we read, and about other people when we read. And so that's a very helpful thing. So that's what he teaches about why we love stories he then goes on to discuss these four different genres and these genres are very helpful for us to learn about how to read things Um, these are classical categories and they're worth respecting and knowing and so there's four of them and you've probably heard these four there is the comic the lyric the epic and the tragic so those are the four you could say primary story forms like we have three primary colors we have what is it a red green and blue i believe and each of those colors you can mix together in certain ways to create different colors that aren't red blue and green you can create purple you can create you know black you can create uh, white you can all those things you can create with these particular colors and that's the same way with stories that each story may not solely be a tragedy may not solely be an epic, but it has its dominant feature that runs throughout it. So um, let's talk about each of these genres. And some of them, we can't explain all of them and, and all their ins and outs because it's just it's a long winding road to do that sort of thing. So we're just going to touch on some of the features and maybe even how they relate to uh, the, Bib- the biblical stories as well. So we're going to start with epic. And uh, this is a, a form of storytelling called the epic genre. So Sam what is the epic genre and what are some examples that you can think of when it comes to the epic genre? Kind
1: of like the title of our podcast, Poets and Philosophers. How do I want to explain this? Do I want to explain it as a poet or a philosopher? Yeah. And one thing that I think we'll probably reference her book quite often, uh The Terrain of Comedy by Louise Cowan. She argues that when you look at genres, be less concerned about the characteristics because all genres will defy kind of characterization sometimes. And I'm still trying to understand what she's writing and how am I going to know something if I can't articulate its characteristics? Um, So I'm thinking about, let's say a banana pie. There's two ways to know of a banana. Let's say a banana cream pie. First I could say, here's the ingredients and that's what a philosopher is going to do, right? Here's the ingredients of a pie. The poet is gonna do what? Just taste it and feel it, right? So I'm gonna try to do the both of those things with epic genre. And again, I am, yeah, I'm trying to understand more of what would characterize an epic, uh, or comic, or a comedy, tragedy, uh, lyric. So first, what are the ingredients of a epic? And Abe, we both went to a, uh, uh, was it a summer intensive in uh, yeah. w- at, our, uh, at, for, for a class? And these are the ingredients or the characteristics of most epics. So, first, we have the invocation of a muse. And what that means is you'll have a poet who's about to, um, go off into some story and he'll say oh muse you know help me help me sing this and remember this this story so he evokes the muse with epics you normally have heroes and villains and the heroes are going to be fighting for probably some kind of city and the villains are trying to take it over uh, with tyranny also epics are grand they are Uh, their adventures, you're not going to have an epic that's about a gas station on the corner of, you know, main street and state street. It's not going to be, you know, it's not some very small thing that happened in one part of the world. It is the world is changing and the heroes are trying to save it. Uh, So it's, it's very grand. It's big. Uh, Also characters in an epic, are going to be monsters and dragons. Um, There's going to be battles. And generally, there's going to be foundings of a city. Uh, So you're going to have something start. And maybe, you see, all of these, there's so many exceptions. But again, they're they're just characters to help us identify them. Um, And I think I've already mentioned this one, but cosmic states. If the heroes do not fight off the uh dragons and monsters and the orgs uh then there's going to be cosmic uh consequences so now let's go as a uh poet if you're more of a poetic um disposition or you know uh, if that's kind of who you are then this is how louise cowan would say how you can identify an epic an epic is the realm of struggle. If you notice, characters are struggling towards, um, you know, heroes are struggling to save the city. That is an epic. Um, so, examples that I would give, which is, uh, would be Lord of the Rings, the Iliad, Odyssey, and Aeneid, um, Abe. What would you differ with anything that I said, or do you want to expand upon? Well, what's um, funny of the, the way parts- that
0: you we're talking about um, the uh, you know oh you wouldn't it wouldn't be at a gas station at uh, uh, Main Street and State Street. Um, you're right, but there is the like almost parody of epic, which is Ulysses. A story, and I have not read Ulysses, but basically it's about a guy who who goes to a coffee shop, and it 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 it, it almost it makes fun of the epic genre uh, itself. It's so it's actually it's pretty funny, a little story. But I have not uh, I have not read it. Um, and I, I'm gonna look it up to see who wrote this. Yeah, that's that that's funny. Yeah, so he just kind of writes about this guy who goes to a coffee shop, and it's like but it's written like a epic, you know? So Ulysses is the Latin name for Odysseus. And so, yeah, it's yeah. uh so I, I have not read that. I kind of want to read it at some point because it sounds hilarious. So, so there is that, but the reason why it's considered an epic is because it's this person who understands the key ingredients of that story and writes them out, but then turns them on its head. And it's still considered part of the epic genre, even though it's, just satirizing it or making it a parody. And and it's got all those ingredients there.
1: I would say, yeah, Don Quixote is the kind of same way. I haven't finished Don Quixote, but it's kind of about, you know, kind of a fool stumbling along and um, in his own little part of the world. But
0: yeah, if you want to explore these ideas more, I highly recommend. Um, Luis Cowan is a general editor of this series of four books, each of the books deal with a different genre. So there's the terrain of comedy, the tragic abyss, the prospect of lyric and the epic cosmos. And each of these, she has the introductory essay, which are fantastic for getting into these ideas. And then there's several authors that write different things. So like one of the ones, I think I wrote a paper on uh, Mo's, uh, the story of Exodus being an epic. And um, I think, I believe there's an essay in this uh, series about that very thing that I used as a reference here. Um, maybe I thought that it was. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, dealing, dwelling with glory. So I, th- I think that I think the uh, the Book of Exodus is very much in the epic genre of things and um so some of the things that uh story like an epic same was saying a few of them there as well but one of the things that's really important many times is immortality of the people at the expense of the hero so one of the hallmarks of an epic is like the hero will die at the end and the reason why the hero dies is so the whole people themselves can be saved so that that's part of it another another feature is called it begins with uh, known as medius race which is like you begin right in the middle of this conflict that just is there. And you kind of have to learn about what this conflict is. So like, uh, the Iliad begins in the middle of the Trojan war, or really actually towards the end of the Trojan war. And it doesn't explain much of it. It just like throws you into the middle of it. And that's typically how they, how they begin. Um, and you, you, you mentioned a few of the things as well, as far as how it works in her essay she calls it, uh, epic as cosmopoiesis. In other words, it is this world building thing that the entire, um, new way of life is being constructed for a people. And that's what the epic is supposed to do. It's supposed to like give people a new way of living. So you can't discuss everything about these ideas, but those, that's really what we should consider an epic. She says like Genesis, uh, the Gilgamesh, she says Don Quixote. She even says the brothers Karamazov, which is interesting. And no, you wouldn't you wouldn't agree with her on that. Well, she says all of these bear the imprint of an epic. Okay. That's what she says. Yeah,
1: yeah studying brothers. K, yeah, I I actually want to just start thinking about what genre it would it would be in because I haven't thought about too much about brothers Karamazov's genre. I right now I'm thinking it's more of a tragedy, but we'll see. See yeah. what I think in, you know, yeah. four months. Uh, yep. That's and, that's and I good. would say that one of the, you know, today epic is maybe five years ago it was more popular of a word, but oh that's so epic. Right. The main reason why is because it's so huge, right? It's it's this big story. There's you know, cosmopoesis, you know, there's the world is being built and good versus evil is at war with each other and it's just, it's not, if, if good, if the good people, if the heroes fail, it's huge.
0: Yeah. So it's not like you don't get into med school. It's that the entire cosmos is now changed for the bad. So, yeah. All Mm -hmm. right. So that is there. And so some, so we talked about some biblical texts that would be considered epic Genesis and Exodus would be considered that. Um, there's probably a few others but now let's move on to the epic uh, the 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 genre of tragedy so the tragic genre Um, so sam what are some examples or what what makes up the tragic genre what's what's it for what's it trying to do
1: to the philosopher i would say the ingredients of a tragic tragedy is a noble person who starts in very you know in a very happy estate and quickly And seriously, there was reversal to a wretched state of affairs. And this is not about explaining this horrible state of affairs. It's just you see the character, this noble character, have everything removed from him. He's inflicted with boils. Um, And also, the tragedy part of the tragedy is how quickly everything comes, and then you have an end. It's not a long story. It's just uh, – uh, I forget how one of our professors talked about this. The, uh, uh, the literary form mimics the drama, something like that, to where it's just very quick, and also the tragedy is, is a very short piece. It's generally pretty short. I think Aristotle talks about it. it's, a, it's appropriately Long, but there he is talking about it being short um and to the poet i would say it is the realm of suffering and one thing that louise Cowan says which i think is very good is when you start recognizing these genre types you don't have to watch the whole film to characterize it you will be able to watch let's say 50 15 or five minutes of a show and just know right off the bat, okay, this is the realm of suffering, but, you know, and that's, um, what a, that's the realm of a tragedy. Or if you're watching a, uh, an Epic, you would know, oh, wow, this is the realm of struggle. This is, this is a comedy. Well, yeah. So tragedy is the realm of a, um, Struggle no, it's the realm of uh, fate or suffering and you really have <clears throat> you really have no hope by the person who's having you know who's being inflicted so uh, the, the main example I have, which I've already alluded to is is job in the Bible. Um, that is a tragedy, and you have a very noble person suffer um, and he doesn't know why. He just is there and suffers. And um, I don't, I would like to know, Abe, what your thought is about catharsis. But one thing that Aristotle thinks about tragedy is there's a very uh, emotive buildup that we get as we read it. And then when it ends, we have a feeling of delight. I'm not exactly sure why but it's you have a feeling of delight and that's called catharsis catharsis just means um purging i guess a a purge and it's like you have these motions in you and when you read a tragedy tragedy or you watch a tragedy um you have this purge and oh wow at the end of the drama or novel and it feels kind of good and anyways i don't exactly know why that happens But I do feel that it does happen. Anyways, I think that uh, Job is probably the, I would say, quintessential uh, example of a uh, tragedy.
0: Yeah, I would would say Job is is quintessential. I would also put uh, Oedipus Rex on top of that. The thing with Job, how it defies the tragic genre, is that Job does get all of his stuff in the end. Whereas in Oedipus Rex, um, Oedipus ends his own life at the end of it. So that would be the difference there, and I think *Oedipus Rex* has a bunch of those things that that happened there. So the noble house falls swiftly. Um, so things just happen, and it, it happens very fast, like you were saying. Um, also, a, a word that um, Aristotle uses to describe why the fall happens is because there has been what he calls a *hamartia*, which is the Greek word for uh, what we would uh, the what we would translate as sin many times. Hamartia just means like missing the mark or a miscalculation. So the reason why that the tragedy happens is not because just some, many times an outside element, it's because the person has done themselves in. Um, So like in the case of Oedipus Rex, there's a prophecy that he is going to, you know, kill his father and sleep with his mother. And like, no, that'll never happen. And a bunch of things happen to it. But he ends up doing that and once he finds out that he's done that then he doesn't know what else to do with his life and he and he ends himself um so i well. i i i thought that a tragedy is
1: fate driven like oedipus rex well, to where yeah, fate is there, is, there yeah. is no culpability on the noble person's side so you have a noble person who receives uh i don't know just fate is not on their side and i i guess i never thought that uh the
0: person in a tragedy is guilty in any way well he 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 is guilty because even though the prophecy says this is going to happen to him he still ends up doing those things and once he finds out that moment of knowledge then his health does it in and i think that that moment there is where you know you realize it and you may be thinking you know is genesis chapter three part of the epic genre i mean part of the tragic genre and i would say yeah it, it is it has a lot of those characteristics as far as you've got the noble house of adam and eve it's a very short chapter it's very swift and there they kicked out of the garden for what they've done and there's that reversal of fortune as far as them being this great house to the small house um and you have this sense of forbidden knowledge you know literally the tree of knowledge of good and evil whereas um oedipus's mother knows the whole story and eventually tells him everything and as soon as he tells him as soon as this knowledge comes out then his life is uh, his life is ruined um, at that point so those are some features of the tragic uh, The tragic. this is Aristotle's favorite genre he spends a lot of time talking about it and he really appreciates the uh, catharsis effect or cathartic effect of it um, and it's like you were saying like why is this such a good thing I was trying to do some breeding to figure out like why this is so good, but this purging that takes place and I don't really know all the reasons why. I don't even think I could have a good, you know, I guess it's like this forever the same reason of us having a good cry. We would like to say like, as soon as I cried it out, I just feel much better that all of my, all that tension that has built up has just been released. And now I feel much better. Like Maybe that's, maybe that's part of the reason why seeing something terrible happen helps us just reorient ourselves. Or um, it could be, you know, to use biblical ideal idea, uh, Ecclesiastes says, you know, better it is to go to the house of mourning than the house of rejoice, rejoicing, because that is the end of all men. So maybe going to a tragedy helps us contemplate our own mortality, and that's good in of itself. And I do think if I am
1: right which I'm not even putting much weight on that, if I'm right, that the Brothers Karamazov is a tragedy. I see a lot of these things that happen. They struggle in life, and I know that their life is just like mine. And there are genuine—it's it, it's always comforting to know people have gone through what I've gone through. And I'm not trying to say that my life has been just you know a tragedy, but— you know the hiddenness of God is a huge theme. You know why does God not speak? Um, that's the world I live in. You know I, I I read Scripture, but God doesn't just come down and say, "Hey, good morning, Sam." It's, um, you know, I'm sending rain today. Uh, I hope that you enjoy it. Um, just remember, uh, I'm always with you, and I don't I don't really get that, and I I have to deal with the silence of God, the hiddenness of God. And, um, anyway, so with tragedies, I kind of, I feel a little bit comforted. And also, I guess, I'm not sure if we could talk about the death of Christ being the tragedy because we have the resurrection that quickly follows, but it is that idea that, you know, God is there with us in our suffering and there's something comforting about reading through people who live in the same world that I do and uh i'm not alone i don't know
0: yeah yeah i think that's the hard part about this particular idea is to figure out all right um why do we like the tragedy so much you know but all right so that is tragedy let's move on to lyric now lyric is a tough one because i've not done much reading of lyric and studying of lyric like i read the introduction to it in uh, louis Counts' book and this is the different this is a difficult one because um it's not one at least i don't think we talk much about or is in part of our stories and such it may be in our songs i think it may be in some of our songs as far as uh that a feature so the lyric um it is some of the features it would have According to Louis Cowan, is it's longing either for something that we've lost or for something that we have never had to begin with. So nostalgia is a very central part of um, of lyric. Like we're looking for something that we don't know about. So like the the sense of like anticipation of something to come, but we don't know if we can find it. So longing is a big feature of it. Uh, Also, uh, there's a longing, not only of just something lost or never had, but there's a longing for to be rid of time. So time is involves for us death. And so we have like song of Psalms or song of songs, which is the song of Solomon is probably like the, the famous lyric of the Bible. There's that section there where, where, um, where uh, she says, you know, for our love is stronger than death. And that sense of longing of, oh, like, I want to be, I want to, I, I don't want to die. <laughs> I, I I want our love to be eternal like that. And then there's also that famous uh, poem, uh, you know, do not go gently into the good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And again, there we we hear that call for, like, Death is not a good thing. I want to be gone from death. I want death not to be there for me. And so there's that longing in this section here. Um, So it's the realm of maybe anticipation, consummation, and then even afterwards, like lamentation because it's all gone. But I long back for those days. So Sam, what are some other things we could add to the lyric genre?
1: I have nothing to add. Oh, (laughs) I... I I mean this is definitely the most difficult for me to talk about. I I would actually really like to go through some kind of course on lyric and I know so we shouldn't confuse lyric the genre with lyric and like the song part of it. Yeah. Um yeah. so uh lyric is I know Louise Cowan says it's the realm of love and it's where it, when you were talking earlier, I was thinking about the Romantics, and I know Kierkegaard uh, is somewhat out of that Romantic movement. He was not for the Romantics, but he was at least sympathetic to them because he doesn't think, you know, Hegel's philosophy is uh, the end all of um, understanding. But I I don't read uh, a lot of the. I mean, even Song of Sol, uh, even Song of Solomon i haven't really understood that well and i have kind of read about all the various kind of allegory that it could be but this is it seems that even in the western tradition there is not that much lyric and anyways uh this is this is kind of an anomaly for me
0: yeah i would say that there is but maybe we just don't really think of it as a lyric, as the genre of the lyrics. So she cites Psalm 23 as the lyric genre. And I think that that, that is really true because I think about some of the lines there, as far as the ending of it, you know, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And it begins with the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Um, not necessarily the theme of like lovers in the garden frolicking together, you know, happily ever after sort, but this sense of this lyric as in like, I long to be with God forevermore. And that's what I want. I don't want anything more than that. I don't want anything less than that. Like that's what I want. Um, There's also ode to a Grecian urn, which is another just sense of uh, nostalgia because there's a time past of how things were and couldn't it be those things today? And then Psalm 173 as well, where, I can't quote this one as much as I can, Psalm 23, but it begins with things like, by the rivers of Babylon, you know, the, the, the psalm embodies the people who are by the rivers of Babylon, so they're in captivity, and they ask the question, you know, how can we sing of Jerusalem again? So they're in this world, they're in this place where they're foreigners, they're they're captives, but they long for the days of Babylon, and they want to sing of the. They long for the days of Jerusalem to sing of those great things that happened during the kingdom that they that they once had. So that's where the the genre of lyric would go. Um, but yeah, like you were saying, like for both of us, I think there's not a lot in this realm of genre that we're very familiar with. So it's it is one that I want to I want to dig deeper on. So maybe we'll force ourselves to do a whole podcast on lyric just so we have to study it and uh, come up with some things. All right, last one. The last one is the comic genre. We saved it for last because there's a lot here to say about this whole thing. So Sam, start us off here. what what what's the uh, what's the comic genre? What's in here for us? Comedy, I would contrast with tragedy. So
1: comedy is going to start uh, low. Instead of a noble person in tragedy who has, uh, you know, the the world taken from him. In comedy, you start in a very low place. You have a fool who is uh, struggling, and then it turns out that he overcomes at the end. And to the poet, uh, you can notice this kind of genre through. The faith and possibilities that are uh, that are within this worldview, whatever uh, world you're you're seeing in drama or literature, and uh, I guess that's all I have to say about it right now. It's the realm of faith. It's where you know the possibilities instead of tragedy, which is the realm of fate that you have no change, you have no say in the matter, you just have to suffer it. This one, it's this is what could be. And um, right now, reading Dante's comedy, uh, he actually... We call it the divine comedy. He never called it that. He just said the Commedia, And that is showing a person starting in hell having to look at the vices that plague all humans. Or, yeah the vices that plague all humans, and him categorizing those in the depths of hell. He goes to purgatory, which is an intermediate state to where love is purified. And then ultimately at the end, he has himself, the third book is the Paradiso, where love is perfected then. And that is when you get to spend you know, eternity um, with his love. And it's interesting too, talking about lyric, The thing that pulls Dante along is love, his love for Beatrice, but then it shifts over um, when he gets to, uh, well, I mean, Beatrice anyways. So it is love that pulls him along, but ultimately it starts very low and he's in hell. Then he goes to purgatory and uh, paradise. So anyways, uh, that is how I understand Comedy—it's not the comedy that we think of today, where it's—it's it's all about getting a laugh, or it's something you know, hilarious and humor, wit. Um, it's more of seeing a fool
0: become a saint. But there is, though, a sense of laughter that is built inside the comedies. Um, there is not—not not so much as we think of just comedy for the sake of comedy, but. There's there's a lot of funny moments that are part of that particular genre. Um, I'm thinking of so one of the features of uh, you think talked about the fool, and uh, I think it's a Cedric Whitman calls it the uh, Ponte Ross or the little person, and this little person is the person who has this deep ambition to see the world righted again. So he wants things to he wants to make things right, and he has such a conviction that he can do it that nothing will stop him. So one of the ones, I believe it is from Aristophanes' play, Peace. I could be wrong about that. But there's a character in it named Trigius. And trageus is this guy who's got to go up to the heavens and he's got to go wake up the god of the goddess of peace because there's war on earth. And so he's got to go up there and do it. And he's like, How do I get that? you know, he was like talking to his friend there is I think he's a slave about getting up to heaven. And, you know, he's like, Oh, here it is. And he like it's a dung beetle, a wonderful dung beetle. I'm going to rise up to heaven. Oh, sweet, dear Pegasus, take me to the skies, you know. And it's really funny because here's this guy riding what's most likely this giant dung beetle, and he calls it his Pegasus, you know, this beautiful white-winged horse. But, he, you know, it's just a dung beetle, you know, this thing that deals with with poop all the time. Like, that's that's comedic. That's hilarious because it's ironic. And, it, it, uh, and he goes up and he finds... Um, and he finds uh, peace. And in the end, um, the chief end of uh, merit, uh, the chief end of comedy is marriage, according to uh, Louise Cowan. I think she's right on, right on that. Like, it's the chief goal and the good of comedy. So a lot of comedies will end with a marriage that takes place. And in fact, Trigius does end in marrying, I forget who, but it's a little bit of a while since I've read that. But he ends up marrying somebody at the end of it. Um, so we see that. Um, and, uh, so we already talked about Don Quixote being a epic, but it does share a lot of, in the sense of comedy as well. Like he is definitely that foolish person who, um, the world will not get him down because he is so dedicated on what he wants to do. And, uh, I think there's definitely similarities there between the two there.
1: And so. I do think that play, uh, some that we talk about, which I think, christians should have is a comic vision and it's a way to see the world and through your vision you can transform the world so trigeus um yeah the war war is the god he he has peace in a cave he pretty much has him in you know in a in dungeon so he looks at his dung beetle and through his vision he says no that's pegasus and you could say, oh, well, Trageus, he's, he's, uh, he's fantastical. You know, he is, he's, uh, he's off, you know, he, he's not, um, he's not all there, but then he gets to heaven on this dung beetle. And by the way, he thinks the dung beetle can get to heaven because there is something in scripture, it was actually Aesop's fable, but there's something that, Trigius read in Aesop's fable that says a dung beetle can get to heaven. So he's like, okay, because of the scripture, I can do that. And then he transforms his peasant fellow into soldiers. Yeah. And he transforms their weapon and their, their farm, farmery, <laughs> um, their uh, tools. farm Yeah. Farm tools into weapons. And he he through his vision based on scripture, he sees the world in a different way and it actually works. Right. And that we can do, you know, because we as people are sinners, right? Right. But cannot we can't we use, as Jesus did with the prostitutes, can't we say that there's a possibility there of that person being a saint? Mm-hmm. Is there not a way where we can lift the world up by our vision? and see things as they are based on Scripture. And anyway, so I think with Aristophanes, it's, it's not just an illusory way of looking at the world and saying, hey, this is the way it could be, and I'm just going to look this way. It's, it's saying, hey, based on this text, this is the way the world could be. Why don't we just stand on the text and use our vision to pull up this world that has fallen um, and kind of redeem the world? And uh, look at people and, and see much more potential than we actually do. So it, I think that when we talk about comedy, you need a comic vision to appreciate it. But in life, we should have a comic vision and see the pe- you know potential in people um, as scripture directs us to.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's... Uh... It's a, good, it's a very popular genre. In fact, she says that it's the most, uh, Louise Cowan says it's the most broad genre, that it just encapsulates just about everything. Uh, so that's just part of it. And yeah, it's that story that we love to see. We love the little guy succeeding and winning, the underdog story, if you will, we would call it today. And we, we love that story. And it doesn't matter how many times we read that story. Typically, we, we want to read more of those types of stories. We love that underdog story. Um, all right. So here's like a question that's worth thinking about just in general here with these, this story section. Um, should Christians engage in reading or even writing these particular stories? So we have Plato's argument that Plato says, you know, the realm of the forms, um, the ideas, those are the most pure things. and Anything we do to obfuscate that by creating images to represent that, we are getting away from the purest form of thought. And so we shouldn't do that. Um, and that happened also somewhat towards, somewhat in the age of the Puritans. You know, there's a, during the Puritan Reformation of England and in America, they shut down all theaters. Uh, in fact, they would say things, uh, so there's a, there's a quote here. I like it because it sounds it's found super Puritan from William Prynne from 1663 in his, in the opening this, opening his book called historiomatics uh, yeah uh, he says wherein it is largely evidenced by diverse arguments by the conclu- concurring authorities and the resolution of sundry texts of scripture that popular stage plays are sinful heathenish lewd, ungodly spectacles and most pernicious corruptions condemned in all ages as to- as intolerable mischief to churches to republics to manners minds, and souls of men, and all of the profession of play poets, of stage players, together with the penning, acting, and frequenting of stage plays, are unlawful, infamous, and, infamous, and misbeceiving of Christians. So he just says, you know, stage plays are bad. Writing is bad. Um, we shouldn't read, we shouldn't have those sorts of stories. Um, that's It's just wrong all the way through and through. And one of the reasons why a lot of them argue this is because um, they talked about the un- things that they were, they were fiction. So they were not true. And so he dwelled there. There was also an argument that a lot of the plays at that time were um, grotesque for the sake of being grotesque profane for the sake of being profane and uh, actors and actresses back then had a, a hit, uh, had a, uh, had to make their money through other means than just being on the stage because it didn't pay very well. So, there was a, there's a, back then there's a history against it, but, you know, what about the fact that, hey, it is dealing with lies and such, and so should we, as people who love the truth, should we investigate and even read stories that are just made up? I mean, there's nothing in The Lord of the Rings that is true. There's nothing in Narnia that is true. So, well, I would say that, but, um, so what would you say to that, Sam?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking... Oh, okay. I was gonna. I was originally going to say that God, through history, has written a story, and I think one of the most harmful things that has been one of the most harmful things that has happened to the gospel is that it has been. Emptied of all of its narrative and story, and now it's just a proposition. You know, now it's the plan of salvation. Let's say, you know, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. That's the gospel. It's like not once in the New Testament, at least with uh, Jesus's gospel, or Paul and Peter in the Book of Acts, or Math the gospel of Matthew, Mark luke and john it's always within jesus is the fulfillment of israel's story and longings um so it's like okay technically this william Mm prin he was talking about fictional uh fictional stories and i'm trying to think of um exactly uh thinking against that i do think um one of the things okay so yesterday uh i actually preached on a sermon on the gospel and i kind of made the same point pretty much i um i was planning on preaching the gospel after i read um jrr tolkien's on fairy stories i was like this is it um this is what we as christians need to learn that there is a wor- This world is different than everyone else thinks it is, right? There is actually a kingdom breaking into... Jesus actually launched a kingdom, and the world is different now than it was before Jesus. And when we read the gospel, we read about demons and spirits and miracles and the pouring out of tongues and resurrection... And this world is 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 a different kind of place than many, especially people after the Enlightenment, who mechanized nature, who thinks nature is just this dead thing that runs on its own. There's no mind behind it. That's not the world we live in. And I love G.K. Chesterton thinking about like the enchanted world we live in, and really realizing that yeah, we can predict some things, but one, it's amazing. Like we we have become dull to the wonder and enchantment of the world as it is and reading stories is going to i think keep us sensitive to those uh you know astonishing parts of our world so anyways i'm, I'm i guess i'm just trying to think of god saw it fit i almost think the incarnation and this is something Plato would be against, right? Plato is against the incarnation as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Like God becoming an expression of um in a bodily expression, that's just wrong. And the fact that God has humbled himself to become a person and become in a st- and to, you know, fulfill a story and be in a story, I don't know why we would ever be against story. And I would think the more we understand stories, the more we're going to be able to understand and appreciate the gospel. Um, So I think that it's very important. I think one one of the reasons why evangelism has been, has suffered is because we've propositionalized, if that's a word, we've propositionalized it and we've no, we're no longer sensitive to narrative and, it's no longer a delight for people to listen to the gospel, but they're more so thinking, okay, give me the five steps and I'll do it. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's all about personal salvation. It's not about what God has done showing his character through his in working with Israel and uh, ultimately him being the the true Israel through Jesus Christ. So um, that was kind of a hodgepodge of just various parts of story within that God has done and I think that we should never poo-poo story.
0: Yeah. Well, so I would argue like this way, like number one, do we find Christ making up stories? Yeah, we do. He he told untruths. Um, he told the parables. A lot of those parables were very untrue. Um, That's great. We want to talk about Lazarus, whether it was true or not. That's an exception, but most of the ones that he talks about are untrue. You opened up with David, I mean, Nathan talking to David about this ewe lamb. Was that a true story? Well, factually, um, it may or may not have been true, but that wasn't the point. The point was it illustrates and it showed David his own sin. So there's those two aspects, or there's that particular aspect of how things are done. Or you think of God trying to teach the people to come back to him, every almost through the prophets. A lot of times, yeah, he does it propositionally, logically, but also he tells, you know, uh, I forget which one, I think it was Ezekiel, go lay on your side for, I forget how many days, and eat bread. Um, Isaiah, hey, go walk around butt naked for a little bit and show people how wrong everything is. Or, you know, Hosea, go marry, yeah, was it? Yeah, Hosea, go marry this uh, prostitute, and he's teaching people through those particular stories. So I I I love the puritans. Um I've been reading a book by Leland Ryken on the puritans. I've been really enjoying it. Um but I want to read more on this particular place where I I would disagree with them as far as. Now, maybe there's some places to agree with William Prynne about um the stage and stuff, but uh there's there's a place for 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 me to go. No, no, no. Um You you've missed you've missed a big point here with the way the Bible comes to us in this narrative format. So, I think what you said was good, though. As far as we have become, we have propositionalized things. That's probably not a word, but it sounds good enough. We have just you know um, we have we've given an executive summary of the gospel, whereas we need to capture the proclamation of the gospel and not just simply well here's what's here here's your next steps for you
1: and if we want to model our gospeling after the first century we have to preach the story of israel it was never really divorced by oh you want to get saved uh here do this it's no this is what god is was doing through israel this is how jesus has fulfilled it and guess what the world's a different place because of it and here's how you can participate yeah um so it's If we want to be, I guess, truthful to uh, the first century and how they
0: did it, we ought to uh, be concerned with story, their their story. Yeah, no, I I think you're exactly right. So, all right. The last section we wanted to talk about is, uh, we'll probably just spend a little bit here, but it'll be worth talking about, is the nature of um, what Tolkien called fairy stories. And fairy stories, um, you can read his... uh, his little essay it's a pretty uh formative essay it's worth it's definitely worth reading um but he talks about fairy stories and what, he's, what he thinks fairy stories is fairy stories that deal with like that magical realm of things and in it he argues about a lot of things about why we read these stories and why they're just not for children um but they're for for really everybody so um he he lists some things of why we have these stories, these uh, fairy stories. And w- one of the reasons why he says we have these desires to survey the depths of space and time. We want to know things clearly. Um, we want to desire to hold communion with other living things. You know, we like to read about the centaurs and the elves and those other creatures here. Um, there's a sense in which we want to escape from things. And he does not actually look down on fantasy or just fictional writing as, uh, as escapist literature is a bad thing. He says, it's a good thing. He says, you know, if somebody was trapped in a prison, wouldn't they want to talk about and think about what life is like outside the prison? Wouldn't that be something great for them to do? And for us, as we're on this world in this fallen world, wouldn't, isn't that a good thing for us to fantasize about the life beyond it and to think about how good, good things can be. Um, he talks about fantasy in that sense. He talks about recovery as getting things back to the way they were, you know, like we've lost something. So let's get things back to the way they were. And fantasy helps us think through those ideas of what it means to recover. And then like the final thing he says is um, fantasy is like the consolation of things. So it brings things all, you know, the sense of recovery, but also something, creates something new in and of itself. And, he calls and he then he connects it to the uh, the incarnation as well. In fact, he calls the incarnation the you catastrophe. And so, for those of you who know Greek, the epsilon upsilon uh, prefix means good. So it's the good catastrophe that happened was the was the sin that followed uh, the sin of the garden, but also what followed in through the uh, the incarnation as far as Jesus becoming flesh for us. Then the resurrection is the catastrophe of the incarnation, so that consolation, that bringing things together, that bursting into the kingdom, that what Sam talked about in this section comes about because of, um, because of uh, because of uh, the catastrophe there and that consolation effect, and when we're reading stories, we are looking for those things and enchanting our worldview with those things and, and, and working towards not necessarily believing things that are not true, but like jumping into a world and living in there. And in doing that, we realize we, we think about our own world that we live in. And so it's a helpful thing for us. It's a, it's a wonderful essay to read. Um, Sam, do you have anything else to add to um, that thing there? was not able to
1: read this whole essay. I think I got halfway through um, just because of various other I'd like to call them obligations. I might have just gotten lazy. <clears throat> um, one thing I, I think about is Edmund Burke talks about the importance of moral imagination, and we have to be a people who can imagine the way things could be. And like one thing with you know my daughter uh at night sometimes we talk about we read we do stories and uh i she'll ask me for a story and i'll say some kind of story and i'd be very embarrassed if i ever told you the stories i tell her because they're really, really bad and it it also makes me kind of insecure that i think tolkien wrote the lord of the rings series or maybe the hobbit just by uh the reason why he wrote it down wasn't because he was telling his kids the story and that his Kids kept on saying, hey, that's the wrong name, or hey, you said a different detail last time. He's like, fine. Then he just started writing it down, and then he started – I think he wrote The Hobbit because of it. Uh, my stories are not at all like that, <laughs> but the idea is when I tell my daughter these different stories, that uh, – yeah, she – well, one, from my memory, from what I know, I just start with some kind of you know, fiction, I'll ask her sometimes to do a story. What does she do? She looks around the room and she just you know, matches things. She'll say, one time a fan wanted to eat grapes and then she'll just start laughing, you know? Or, or one time, uh, and she'll look outside, a tree wanted to, and then she'll look at a picture and say, became a picture. And it's just, she doesn't have any imagination beyond what she sees, right? And what does that mean? She can only conform herself to what she is seeing. Well, when we introduce stories, kids realize the way things could be. And Edmund Burke thinks, and you know, Edmund Burke was uh, the uh, political figures back in um, the 17th, 1700s in parliament. Anyways, I think he's kind of the founder of what we understand as conservatism, at least conservatism today. And we need to have imaginations to see the world the, the way things could be. And through, I, through me seeing the hero acting in some noble way, I can put that on, not because I've seen it in the world, but because I've seen it in the story. And uh, anyways, when he was talking about Fairy stories are not the fairies themselves. It's about fairy, the land. And he said, the one thing a fairy story cannot be, and uh, I think this is on page maybe five or something. Um, I don't have it right now. But a fairy, fairy land cannot be in a dream. That's why, uh, is it Lewis Carroll's Alice stories? Mm -hmm. Those are not fairy stories because that is through a dream. And you can never go to fairyland through a dream. You think about uh, Narnia being through a wardrobe. That place is real. It's not in someone's imagination. Um, Or you have hobbits. They go out to an actual place that has dragons and elves and orgs. Um, So it's a real place. And we want to instill to our children, there's a real place well, one, this world is way different than people recognize it because of the work Jesus has done on the cross and uh, the empty tomb. And we need to bring back this imagination because it's not false, uh, but yet you can't see it in reality today. Yeah. Um. So just that that idea of, of moral imagination, um, that's one thing with the liberal arts. I think that it's normally a, a talking point. Yeah. Um, we need to bring back stories, and you know, anyone who knows me knows that I've all always been about reading business books and uh, nonfiction, uh, self help, and that's surely you know a flaw of mine. And hopefully, next podcast we're going to talk about. You know a recap of you know what we thought about our last pod you know podcast or have some kind of uh, reflections and I'm going to say hey I've started well I actually have
0: been reading
1: Narnia recently but oh yeah
0: um, I just finished the uh, Lion Witch in the wardrobe the other day so
1: yeah I think we're on chapter nine or ten we've been reading it as a family but anyways that's been a lack of mine and I hope to do uh, better in the future
0: yeah yeah so. Um, We really appreciate you guys listening to this podcast. If you want to share this to other people, we, we really appreciate that. We're going to continue uh, more of this thought on fairy stories and this whole realm of things uh, on another podcast uh, later on. But uh, like we said, go to poetsphilosophers.com and sign up and join our reading club. And as soon as we get enough members and a, a book list, we are going to start reading. And you can just jump in, however you want to jump in. But uh, we'd also appreciate if you would rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever would be like whatever wherever you can rate a podcast or just share it with friends. That's always really important. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys in the next one.